today, if there is somebody who needs to reach out in faith and repent and believe, Lord, we pray that today would be their day of salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, we just pray that we would give you all the praise that you deserve. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, welcome again uh, to First Baptist in this morning. And uh, we'd love to have you fill out a, uh, a guest card, a connection card. And so please, please do that, especially if you're the first or second time guest. We'd love to know you're worshiping with us. And then all of us have the opportunity to fill out a prayer card. And so we will be faithful to pray for those every Tuesday morning at 930. We meet as a staff and pastor, and, and we will do that. Uh, we do want to, and I know you're thinking, well, okay, we're talking about Christmas now, and it's, it's still 102 out. Well, we've got to get this rolling. And so those of you who have been involved in uh, Back to Bethlehem know it takes a long time to get this ball rolling. And so uh, it, those of you who have never experienced Back to Bethlehem, let's just give you a little 16-second taste of what it looks like, okay? So just an outside uh, production of uh, a way to share the gospel with our community. Uh, like I said earlier, it, it takes about 70 or 80% of all of our church congregation to pull this off. Whether you're in costume or not, it, it, you know, there's, there's all kinds of extra things to do as well. But uh, we need to know who you are and if you w want to be a part of it. So uh, right out in the uh, Connection Center, there's a couple of sheets. Uh, cast information sheet, grab one of those. Uh, there's, all, there's two sheets front and back. We need you to grab both of those. One of those we need you to turn in by the end of August, okay? So whether you've been in this before or whether you're brand new and just thinking about, hey, what does it mean to be a part of Back to Bethlehem, fill those out, turn those into the office mail slot, and we'll compile those and get back with you on, uh, on all that information, okay? So please grab those today and have those done by, by the end of uh, this month, okay? Appreciate that very much. Hey, let's... Uh, so, uh, Brother Philip is going to, he, well, I mean, there's just no doubt about it. He's going to hammer the guys today. He's, he's going he's gonna to nail us. And so, so uh, in our example is, I was thinking about this all week this week. We have an impossible example to follow. We're supposed to love like God. <laughs> That's daunting, right, men? But. We still, we, we've got to have a goal, right? Even though we know we can't attain it, we've got to always daily shoot for it, right? And so let's, uh, let, let's concentrate on, uh, on what God's love is like and then therefore how, how we pattern our love after that. Let's, let's sing together how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast the unknown. Bring many 
time of giving. Lord, we pray that you would just bless each and every gift, each and every giver, Lord. And uh, Lord, as we give, remind us, um, as we all should be reminded every Sunday we, we make this offering, that we're not giving anything we've earned. We're giving simply the blessing that you blessed us with back to you. Without you, there would be no living, there would be no earning, there would be no life at all. And so, Lord, we just want to graciously give back to you those tithes and offerings that are due your great name. And Lord, we ask your blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are my joy. You are my song. You are the Your love defends me, your love. 
I love that song. It reminds us that part of God's love is that of protector, defender. And husbands, that's what we should be to our families as well. Amen. This next song, The Love of God, written about 120 years ago, uh, as with so many hymns, was born out of adversity. Frederick Lehman, who wrote the hymn with his daughter, had experienced great setbacks in business, which left him packing crates of oranges and lemons in Pasadena, California, to make ends meet. Verses 1 and 2 in the chorus were Layman's original words, but perhaps the most memorable lines in the hymn were not Layman's words, but words that someone found scribbled on the walls of an insane asylum a couple of hundred years earlier and passed those words along to Layman. The lyrics, it turned out, were a translation from an old Aramaic uh, poem, now almost a thousand years old. And let's just say... We'll save it. We won't say this together because we're going to sing it later. But when you see those words later, think about the depth and the breadth, the sphere, the sheer volume, the all-encompassing of, of the love of God. And sing it with that in mind, okay? Let's sing together.
Let's bow our heads and sing that once more. Oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure, the saints and Marriage can bring joys and pleasures into this life far greater than one could have ever known before. I hope you believe that. I hope you have lived that out. I hope that would be what your testimony would be regarding your marriage. Marriage is not only an amazing institution in what it can do in a positive way, but marriage also has a unique ability to strip away all the false facades in our lives and at the same time show us who we really are. Y'all ever figured that out? When you get married, for instance, you quickly realize how selfish you can be. Has anybody else learned that other than me? We spoke last week about that standard And again, I I have to bring us back to this because each week I've had people approach me, write me something, say something to me about marriage and family and about the series and what we're learning. And you feel pain from people. Uh, You feel uh, certainly that people have struggled through difficulty with marriage. And we certainly pray for you and understand that we're not denying that it's difficult. But we're also not going to deny the standard, right? And there's never an excuse not to want to hear or line ourselves up with the Word of God simply because we've gone through difficulty, right? So nothing can nullify or excuse, thus saith the Lord. And here's the standard, and yet at the same time when you start to think about how you measure up to the standard, like David mentioned starting off, we're We're somewhere down here. We're underneath the standard as we read. So Ephesians 5 has a unique ability in stripping away our own self-sufficiency. So in other words, if you just take a cursory reading from Ephesians 5.22 down through verse 33 and you come away saying, I can do this, then you are insane. (laughs) It also points us to Christ, doesn't it? And that's our safety line. That's, that's our standard. And, of course, he is the one who gives us the ability. So I need to say this, even though my wife is in the nursery. I need to say this. As you read Ephesians 5, and we begin, men, with verse 25. Okay? I have not mastered this even in the smallest degree. And if you're honest before the Lord, this is what you're going to say as a man of God. When you read verse 25... 
we, there is an admission of struggle, right, at this point for our soul, in our souls, about this, struggling together. There are dangers and there are liabilities in being a preacher. And the first one is I have to preach this to myself before I preach it to you, okay? And we all struggle with following this particular standard. So we come to this section, and let's all admit that we have not mastered it in the least bit. As a matter of fact, one gentleman, I'm not going to call his name, but he said to me today, can we just skip this part and go directly to the children? <laughs> let's go directly to the children, okay? All right. Verse 25 is a transition. It is actually a vocative expression. The focus is going to change right here. Husbands. So the 40 some odd words, you ladies can breathe, relax. Now we're on the spirit-filled husband. Now think about this. There's a connection again with the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thus we're looking at the way a, ultimately the umbrella of the way the family looks when it's filled with the Spirit. Referencing fathers. Uh, right? Mothers, husbands, wives. Uh, we're looking at children. Obey your parents. So really, it's the umbrella of what the home looks like that's filled with the Spirit. But in particular today, we're dealing with the second part of the paragraph, husbands. Okay? So Paul now will focus on the responsibilities of the men, men and all the way down through verse 33. So here's the, is what you ladies have been waiting on, right? <laughs> Beginning in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself, loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This will be a separate sermon coming up, but listen to verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and all of us would say amen. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So proportionately, there's far greater admonition, admonishment, and instruction given to husbands I think uh, there's an obvious reason for this, because in the Greco-Roman society, it was marked by not necessarily the best understanding of what a man's role is. And so Paul's strategy is to elaborate on what a real man looks like that's filled with the Spirit of the Lord, and that understanding has to be brought back with the real reality. Again, understand, you're living out an analogy of a reality. And the reality is Christ and his relationship to his church. So clearly, the wife's subordination to her husband has a counterpart for our responsibility as husbands. And what's the counterpart? Love your wife. 
So in the text, just summarizing, two main things are at play here. First, husbands are urged to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But second, that admonition is repeated. And it's going to be grounded again in Christ's love for the church. And this is kind of strange to me as I look at it, but it's definitely true. You're a husband's love for himself. It's going to be grounded in both of those. Christ's love for the church and the affection that a man may have for himself. So notice that while the husband's headship was so central before. You see it up there in verse 23? For the husband is the head of the wife. When you get to verse 25, it doesn't say, So exercise your headship, dudes. No, that's not what it says. It says, and it's repeated in verse 25, 28, and 33. We're not told to exercise our headship, even in light of the trajectory of the text, saying Christ is the head of the church, husband is the head of the wife. The trajectory moves to this central, important, repeated phrase, love your wives. So, this will involve each husband showing unceasing and caring, loving service for his wife's entire well-being. This is a strong apostolic injunction. Husbands, love your wives. Now, does the Bible, Old and New Testaments, both command us to love in this manner? Uh, We know so. Now, this is going to be strategic for you to think about it. But over in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, listen to how we're told to love in the context of loving. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people... But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then when you get over to Matthew's gospel. Matthew 5, 43. Notice the context of loving. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And 19.9, again in Matthew's gospel, listen to it. So we can understand the context of what he's asking us to do, men. 19.9. I'm sorry, 1919. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So our love, as a result, will involve, listen to this, an act of the will. Is everybody hanging on this? In all three of those cases... It's going to demand that this type of love that God is asking you to have for your spouse be a commitment of the will. Okay? That's important for us to think about as we track through. Is love important in the book of Ephesians? Chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So putting those together, it's vitally important. And then as you flow down through Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, notice. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15 of chapter 4. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Verse 16. When at the very end, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's not all. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. All right, are you ready? Now, we are told as husbands to love our wives. So, this is the flow In the book of Ephesians, and it brings us up to that point, we are commanded to love our wives. Now, are you ready for the sermon? That was introductory. Here it is. Husbands, love your wives. And here's what we're going to do in the coming weeks, if we can put that up there. We're going to talk about loving our wives unconditionally. And guess what? That's the only one we're going to learn today. And then we're going to deal with husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. That's in husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's those two, right? And then we're going to deal with the purpose clauses. When you see so that, then we're asking, okay, what's the purpose of us unconditionally loving and sacrificially loving? There's a purpose for it, right? Washing of the word, we'll deal with those. And then finally, we are to love our wives affectionately. And that will bring us back to husbands to love their wives as they love themselves, okay? That's where we're headed, and then we'll at least do one sermon in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. So we arrive at verse 25, and we're dealing with the very first subpoint: husbands, love your wives. We will deal with that one, okay? Not exercise headship, but love your wives. He doesn't say, okay, you know what to do. Now buck up and take your responsibility as the head. He says, husbands, love. Why does the text tell us to love rather than to lead. Well, I have to be honest with you, it would have been a whole lot easier if he said lead. How do you men feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to lead at times, but the problem is this text says to love. Wives submit, we would think, okay, if wives are submitting, what's the corollary? Husbands lead. No, that's not what it says. It says, wives submit, husbands love. Love, of course, is the anecdote to what we preached last week. We talked about the difficulties in marriage of submission. One was tyrannical husbands. Two was what? Passive husbands. How does love stand as an anecdote against both of those? Well, if your desire is to flaunt your headship in a tyrannical way then uh, love is the anecdote to that. If you're one who's going to sit by passively, then, uh, or if you're tyrannical, you have the attitude, I'm the boss. I'm not a lover. Well, this text says you better be. Or if you have an attitude that I'm going to be passive. And let's be honest, all of us need a swift kick, kick in the backside at times because we're not leading as we should and we're passive. But the proper motivation to fix both of those problems is to love. Okay? That's important for us to see. In other words, learning to lead is to love. 
Learning to lead is to love. So if you love, you will lead. Love is the anecdote to both ends of the spectrum brought about by the fall. Let's say it right. Brought about by the fall. So there's another reason why Paul tells us to love. Does anybody know what it is? Because the most glorious thing that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church is love. And that's why Paul chooses it. Don't miss the overarching passage and what's meant in this text. It is the reality of the love of Christ for his church. And if the husbands are to follow out their, this, this model, if you're to do your part in the analogy, then the most glorious attribute and the most glorious excellency of our Savior toward us was his demonstration to us in his love in the midst of our sinfulness. Okay, keep that in mind. It was an everlasting love for us that actually leads to his lordship over us. It's his love for us. What kind of love is the husband commanded to give his wife? What is this love in the text? Well, most of you would say, well, pastor, I'm assuming in the Greek text it is agapao, right? Agapao or, or agape, right? As a southerner might, southerner might say, agape love. Got the A part to the end, agape. So I think it's at least fitting that we talk about three other, two other types of love so you understand what we're dealing with when we talk about agape. One is what you had standing at the marriage altar, and you absolutely could not wait till the preacher shut his mouth so you could get on with the honeymoon. And that kind of love is called eros, okay? That's an excitement love of passion. That you have being with that person. Let's, let's stop and say this. Man and woman in Eros. Heterosexual marriage. Man, he made them male and female. So let's get that straight first. So we're talking about Eros in that area. I'm just going to have to tell you something, honestly. Eros does not have to be commanded very often. Does it? Doesn't have to be commanded very often. It actually has to be curbed. It has to be governed. Eros-type love has to be directed. There's a second kind of love built out of the terminology of Philadelphia. Phileo, which means at its root, it was born out of brotherly love of affection. Like brothers who are closer than family, we might say. That there's this companionship and friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood. So, can I give you an example of that? Lazarus, who the Lord Jesus Christ brought back from the dead. After there's the interchange of why Jesus wasn't there and he didn't show up and four days in the grave, the Jews say, oh, how he loved this man. The Jews recognize this. What is the Greek word? Phileo. Jesus had a friendship, companionship, deep affection for Lazarus. We know he agaped him too, but it's interesting that the Jews pick up on this. And then there is the word agape. Again, generally speaking, this is a kind of love that is a commitment to the other person's good. Okay? It's not generally a love that is tantalized by attraction or the warm fuzzies. 
with someone in the sense of companionship, it is a fundamental commitment of the will to that other person's good, no matter what the cost is to self. Okay? It's a love that flows out of fullness. Hear this. It's a love that flows out of fullness, not need. This is important for us to think about. When you experience eros-type love, that is a love that meets a need for you. And even when you experience phileo, a need is being met in your life based upon the giving of another. Agape flows out of a principle, not a need. This is the way Paul tells us to love our wives. Now, does the Christian marriage involve all three loves? If it doesn't, you're not too wise. Right? Yes, it does involve all three. Uh, True marital love knows the fire of eros. It knows the friendship of phileo. But it also knows the discipline of agape. we got to nurture all three in marriage. Yet here he's not instructing us to eros our wives or phileo our wives, but to... He's instructing us not to love them erotically or on a companionship level. Is all those things necessary and vital? Guys, you better say it. But what Paul tells us is to love our wives with the kind of self-giving love that operates on the basis of principle, not on how she's meeting your need. Y'all getting this? Now, folks, it's hard for us to love anybody like this. The only exception I would throw out there other than what the Lord commands you to do with your wife would be your children. But I want to remind you, even at that, those limits can be stretched sometimes. Can't they? But we are told right here to love our wives with agape love. And then he's going to give you two two analogies of what it looks like. Christ's love for the church and a husband's affection or love for himself. So... Here's that first one. Christ loved the church. Y'all see it on the page? For the, look at it. Husbands, agapao, your wives. As Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wife not based upon what she does, what she performs, what she can give you, but a commitment of the will to love her. As a person, not a need being met by you, not a need you getting met on your own, but to love her unconditionally would be the word. Now, here's an interesting tidbit of understanding for grammar that you need to hear, okay? When it says, husbands, love your wives, that word love is a present tense imperative. It's a command, but it's present tense, meaning that this kind of love through the dur- is durative, so you're not only, it's kind of like the guy when you said, do you tell your wife you love her? Love her. I told her when I married her at the altar, why do I need to keep telling her? All right. This word is an action word of durative. It's through the duration. It's, pro, it's, it's a progressive action that we are to love our wives continually. You understand? It's a present imperative. However, the phrase, just as Christ loved The church is an aorist tense, which means at a point in time, it's not focused on his durative love of us ongoing. It's focused upon what he did at one point, at one time, and you're told to follow that at one moment point in time when he loved 
and gave, you are told to do that throughout your whole marriage. That's important for us to focus upon. He's focusing on an act of love that Christ did for us. And that was when he gave himself up on Calvary for you. That's the point in time when he loved the church. When he gave himself up Himself up for us on the cross. Don't lose this point. Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives in an ongoing, durative, progressive manner. In the same way that Jesus loved the church at that point in time when he gave himself up for her on the cross. Husbands, love your wives with a Calvary love. Love your wives with the love that Jesus exemplified for us on the hill of Golgotha. When he bore your sins in his body on the tree. That's how you're to love your wives. So, let's hit one sub-point today. Husbands are to love their wives unconditionally. How did God love you? How did Jesus love you? He loved you with free, sovereign, and unconditional love. Something preceded and motivated Christ to come into this world and die for us. What was it? We've got to take into account that Christ loved us. So we start... When we consider the love of Christ, we start with the sovereign, unconditional love and grace of Christ. When did Jesus set his affection on his bride? It wasn't 2,000 years ago, folks. It was in eternity past. It was in Ephesians 1 verse 4 where God loved individuals from the foundation of the world. Subject, he. Verb, loved. Actually there, chose. Direct object, us, before the foundation of the world. So, Jeremiah 33, 3, what kind of love does God have? I have loved you with an everlasting love. And, of course, Ephesians 1, 4, he loved us. In love, he predestined us. That's what the Bible says. So, as we think of the love of Christ toward us, we realize that it was a love that began before time. He loved us. What was our condition when the Lord set his love upon us? Track with me. I'm going somewhere. Did he see a lovely bride and a beautiful woman? I think I would love to spend eternity with this woman in covenant love because she's so wonderful. That's not the condition that the church was in when Jesus set his love on her at all. That's not the condition. What condition? According to the Bible, were we in when he set his free, unconditional, and unchanging love upon us? We were sinners. We were rebels. The Bible says straightforward, Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were not beautiful. We were deformed and defiled. Is there something for an instruction for us here? Christ set his love upon his bride while she was undone ruined and a sinner amen John Piper said Christ did not choose his bride the way we do he did not look for an attractive woman or an intelligent woman or even a faithful woman he chose an unlikely woman and then he set out to make her attractive to make her wise and to make her faithful and he did this at the cost of his own life his love for us did not begin as a love of admiration his love for us was not a response to our beauty. We had none. His first love for us was free. 
and unconditional. And as we consider the love of Christ for his church, that he gave himself up for her, we need to focus upon and remember that the one upon whom he set his affection upon and that he came to die for was filthy, defiled by her own sin. That's what the Bible says. This is how Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes our condition. This is how Romans 5 says it. Just just to whet your appetite, listen to Romans 5. Listen to the word of the Lord as it addresses our condition. We love this verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I hope you understand the condition. You can place all those descriptions over the bride that Christ chose for himself. He chose a bride that was in all-out rebellion against the king of the universe. And yet he chose that bride. Let's set aside this application for marriage for just a moment and focus on a personal note for you. Folks, I hope you understand that the gospel is only for people who recognize their need in these terms. The Bible is clear that unless you recognize your need for Christ, you will not seek him. The Bible is absolutely clear. The grace of Jesus Christ is only embraced by those who understand themselves to be hopeless, helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies of the Most High God. The gospel is good news, but it's only good news to those who come to grips with the bad news. The gospel of God is glorious news. That's what it's called in Romans 1. The gospel of God is glorious news, but only when you have come to grips with the ugliness of your own sin. There is a direct correlation, folks. As we see ourselves for who we are, we truly begin to realize that it's in that state that Christ actually loved you. It's in that state that he actually loved you. At this point, we are not filled with self-esteem. We're not filled with self-love. We're not filled with self-worth. I hope you are filled with a sense of awe to the glory of Jesus for loving you. That's what the gospel ought to do. It ought to turn your focus toward Jesus who loved you while you were unlovable. Who loved you as a sinner. The gospel was not designed to make us feel better about ourselves. Which is a lot of the gospel being preached in this world. It's not a gospel at all. Right? Praise the Lord. Glad Derek's sitting right here. I started... The gospel is for the glory of Jesus. The gospel is for the glory of Jesus. Who came into this world to save sinners among whom I am chief. That's what Paul said. Now if Christians, husbands, ought to love their wives. Now listen. As Christ loved the church, then we need to learn to love freely. And here's the word. We are to love our wives unconditionally. Now that may sound shocking, but husbands need to learn to love their wives. Here it is. As a sinner. Ladies, I hate to disappoint you, but you're still a sinner. And so is your husband, right? Do we love them because they're beautiful? You better. Absolutely. There's nothing, long, nothing wrong whatsoever with pouring over your, your moon with a sense of eros. Come closer to me, baby, in the orbit that we are in, right? 
There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly right and God glorified. Don't you love these words in Hebrews 3? In the marriage bed, it is undefiled. The sexual immoral will be judged. But in the marriage bed, it is ordained by God. Sanctified. Right? I like Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. I'm not ashamed of those verses at all. Some of you are thinking, oh no, where are we going? Listen. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's eros. And I like it. Amen? It's in the word of God. It's there for a purpose. Eros is important. But hear this. It's not this kind of love that lasts all the way through uninterrupted. Please hear me, folks. That kind of love does not always stay at honeymoon proportions. Think about it. Think with me. Beauty should still attract. And friendship should grow progressively stronger as you spend every day with your mate. Because that's obviously the way that your love for Christ ought to be. More tomorrow than it is today. You should love your spouse more tomorrow than you do today. You should. Okay? It is... But think about this. It is in the midst of sin where beauty, beauty often fades. Let's be honest. It is then when husbands take their ultimate cue from the Lord Jesus Christ and they love their wives as sinners. And they love them unconditionally. I'm a sinner too, right? Me and we have to say that. And I will have to say my sins outweigh hers ten to one. I fess up. And if you men... Or with me, you fess up and say, if you've got a godly wife who seeks to live for the Lord, 10 to 1. But listen, part of our own sinfulness complicates the problem when she sins because what is the easiest thing to do in our natural state? Respond sinfully to her. Now we're getting somewhere, right? We set these standards and we get snubbed, men, and we get slighted so we think... And all of a sudden, we get angry, we get indignant, and we sinfully respond. The truth compels us husbands to remember that your wife is a sinner. We do not love her sin or or ungodly actions, but we love the one as one who falls short of the glory of God just like you men do. Right? Just like I do. So I hope you realize the power of sin to erode beauty and attraction. You stood at that marriage altar and you were like, wow, I married a knockout. And if you're not focused correctly, within three months you realize that you're married to a miserable, wretched sinner just like you are. And all of a sudden that beauty begins to fade. And all those things you thought are meaningless and irrelevant. No, that's not true. You're just not seeing the big picture. You're not understanding what God is asking you to do. So this is the cause so often of so many divorces. Jump up here like teeny boppers. You have no idea what you're getting into. Right? And you say these vows and you got eyes bulging out because she's in white and she's beautiful. But three months down the line, whew, Katie barred the door. This is not what I signed up for. Why do you think like that? Because you don't understand what the scripture says. When those things fade... The only thing that carries you forward is the love of Christ. To love unconditionally. So sin erodes beauty and attraction. 
And that is why husbands need to be locked in to loving their wives with agape. The type love, this particular love, is a principle of commitment. So brothers, when your love for your wife is rooted in Christ's love for us as sinners, I'll tell you what it's going to do. It's going to balance that eros, and it's going to strengthen that phileo. It keeps them in balance. This is the power of grace. Loving a sinner is the power of grace. Y'all listening? Is your home a place of grace? Loving a sinner exemplifies the power of grace. It takes power of grace to help you forgive, doesn't it? It helps us cover a multitude of sins. Grace empowers us to love a person who at times may not, that, may not be that lovely. Right? This is how Jesus loved us. And, let me add to it, loves us in the present tense as well. So Christ's love for us doesn't depend on our performance. It don't, doesn't depend upon merit. It doesn't depend upon righteousness. It doesn't depend upon virtues that you have or deeds that you've done. The love of Jesus Christ for you is not predicated on any of these things. If it would have been, Jesus Christ would have not set his love upon any of us. Right? Why? Because we were void of merit, you were void of righteousness, you were void of virtue, and you were void of deeds. The love of Christ comes to us freely and in spite of us. So, we take our vows, and you may actually find some things in the next three months that surprise you. But when Jesus made his vow, he knew you full force. He even, needed, he even knew the hidden sins in the recesses of your soul. And yet he still said, I do. Phew. And yet he still said, I do. So, again, in conclusion, this text is fascinating to me. Why? Because it's so typically Pauline. What do I mean by that? When Paul addresses difficult situations, he's always quick to do something. And it shouldn't surprise us, but here's what he does. Uh, let me give you another uh, one side of the example that I'm thinking of. Let's say that Paul hears that the marriages in Ephesus are struggling. He's getting ready to write this letter. Uh, they've just come out of, I mean, they've been saved out of terrible lifestyles. God transformed them. They're placed in the church. Needless to say... Will there be difficulties in marriages of people who were already married, but they just trusted Christ, and now, whoo, things are different? You're called to think different? So, there's all this contention and trouble in marriages. And let's say Paul says, I've got to address this issue. Now, let's suppose that Paul would have been a 21st century pastor, quote-unquote counselor. How would he have dealt with this? He probably would have said something like this. Brothers, it can be hard to be married. Especially when your spouse doesn't do what you expect her to do. So here's how I want you to start. I want you to start by buying her a dozen roses three times a week. You ladies are getting excited about this council, right? So buy her some roses. Do so three times a week. Make sure you have a date night once a week. Because you need to flame that, fan that flame of eros into your marriage. And by all means, make sure that if she comes out in a new dress... You don't fail to compliment her. <laughs> You're going to get in trouble right there, right? You tell her how very nice it looks. Miss Moon, right? My Moon, you are absolutely radiant. If you do those things, you'll have a happy marriage. 
Now, if Paul would have written that stuff down back in the day, or even now, he probably could have sold 150,000 books through Lifeway on how to have a happy marriage. But you know what Paul does? He does the typical Pauline thing. He contemplates marriages that ought to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because God lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You have identified with Christ. The prevailing prepositional phrase in this book is in Christ. So Paul contemplates that and he takes the cross of Christ and he plants it right in the middle of your marriage. And he says, if you're going to love like Christ, you have to love the way he loved when he gave himself for us. Think about that. Isn't that awesome? I mean, isn't that the way the Christian is supposed to live? With the cross of Christ ever before you. In every situation of life, we have to be driven back to the cross of Christ. That's no less the case when it comes to your marriage. And isn't it beautiful? Contentious marriage, failing marriage, on the rocks. What does Paul do? Right in the middle of it, he places the cross. So that you reflect on what's most important. Look, I think it's very wise that you might buy your wife roses. It'd be very wise for you to compliment her if she comes out in a new dress. Or around my place, she'll walk by and throw her hair around. And if I don't notice that her hair is done, she'll look. <laughs> notice anything? Oh, yeah, huh, yeah. Look, here it is. Paul comes back to the realization that for anything to be successful for the Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross must be planted right in the middle of your life. Does that make sense? Husbands, here's the way to love your wives. And it may seem unnatural to you, but love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's also the way he loved you individually. Because it's individuals that make up the church. Let's pray. Father, help us to ever live with the cross of Christ in view. What you did for us. Payment and price that you paid. Lord, we know full well that our marriages aren't perfect. We know we fall well below the standard. But Lord, maybe, perhaps... If it's your will and you would move, Lord God, perhaps we could experience revival in our homes. For responding to that particular charge and command to love our wives as Christ loved the church unconditionally. Lord, help us. Father, I said last week that maybe there were some wives that needed to apologize to their husbands even before we preach all this text. Not to have an attitude that, oh, let's, let's hear what you say to the men before I offer an apology. Lord, the same is true for the men. Father, help us. Help us to, to right the wrong. Help us to apologize for a failure to love her as Christ loved the church. We're not going to love her as her Savior. You did that. Lord, it has its limits. And we know full well that as human beings we could never reach the lofty love that no amount of ink 
as we've learned in this song, even if the ocean is the ink we pull from, to write the love of God abroad would drain that ocean. We get it. But Lord God, you're giving us the standard. You're telling us that we are to love as you love the church. And the first thing we know is it certainly was unconditional. God help us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, sing these words. We lift our voices, we lift our hearts to you, Lord. We lift our voices, we lift our hands, we lift our lives up to you. We are an offering. Lord, use our voices, Lord, use our hands, Lord, use our lives, they are yours. We are an offering. All that we have, all that we are, all that we hope to be, we give to you, we give to you. We lift our voices, we lift our hands, we lift our lives up to you, we are an offering. We are an offering. We lift our voices. We lift our hands. We lift our lives up to you. We are an offering. Lord, use our voices. Lord, use our hands. Lord, use our lives. They are yours. We are an offering. All we have, all we are. All that we have, all that we are, all that we hope to be, we give to you, we give to you. We lift our voices, we lift our hands, we lift our lives up to you, we are an All right, Billy and JC. This is Billy and JC Williams. Wilson. Wilson. All right. JC was here before. She actually made a profession of faith, was baptized, joined this church back in 07? Six. I'm messing up all the way around. And then she went off and married this dude, right? And Billy knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, and he was a member of a church up the road here. So Billy met with me the other day, and his desire is to unite with our church family to be a member here. And remember, what we ask is that you're willing to take a four-week membership class prior to joining, or when, once you join, you're willing to take that class at some point with me, okay? And so Billy's on board for that. Jason, you gonna come? All right, amen, all right. So uh, just welcome newest members of our church. We praise the Lord for them. Billy will be coming by transfer of letter from a sister SBC church. So we welcome you to our church family. God bless you. Good to see you, Jason. His name is Don. You ever met Don? You have. Yeah, we all have. All right. Now, Don, go back there with Don, and he's going to set you up so we can come out and greet you. Just honored that God has given us new members here at our church. Amen. Praise the Lord. 
Tonight, we have the wonderful privilege of hearing from both of our teams from Guatemala, the one that went in June and the one that went last week that I didn't make, all right? But boy, there's some great God worked in wonderful ways, and we look forward to hearing. Uh, pray for some of them, because some of them have COVID, yep, like a lot of other people around here are having. Uh, Kirk and Michelle, missionaries there, Michelle has had it, I think both of her daughters, and they're all getting better. And so uh, we've got a couple that are a little down and out, but getting better. But uh, please come back tonight, and you'll get to hear how many testimonies? No. Nah. <laughs> so there's going to be three of them tonight. Uh, so we're going to sing to the glory of the Lord, have testimonies, and then uh, we start at 5:30. So we're back in the summer. We're back in the schedule of fall. Okay. First Sunday night, use of the preaching of the word. Second Sunday night will be visitation. We'll have uh, things ready for you. Third Sunday night, usually will be the Lord's Supper, probably preaching uh, or testimony. Fourth Sunday night, no service. And if we hit on a fifth Sunday night, no service, okay? We're going to be in that mode starting tonight, okay? God bless you. Glad you were here, Brother David. Let's end with these. Our, our God is a lion. Let's sing it together. Our God is a lion.